you brought a Bible, it's time to get it and um, follow as I read the entirety of Psalm 51. Psalm 51. You find that and then I'll read it. And then we'll take a look at it. Psalm 51 at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. As most of you know, we are um, we are in a study of the book of Psalms, uh, not all 150 of them, just selected Psalms. And, and if you're not going to do all of them, you're just going to select a few, you wouldn't dare skip Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is David's great penitential psalm after his extramarital affair with Bathsheba. The story, in all of its lurid details and its immediate aftermath, is recorded for you in Second uh, Samuel 11 and 12. We're not going to we're not going to read those stories or those chapters, but I am going to tell the story that's contained there. Guys, um, this Psalm, Psalm 51, occurs. Right after David has been confronted by Nathan the prophet. And, and I can tell you, there, there is just volumes that have been written and preached about, about this song. Uh, the man who helped me the most is a, is a psychiatrist, a Canadian psychiatrist by the name of John White. 
be that as it may, what, what you have in Psalm 51 is basically a description of repentance on the part of a believer. Now, guys, um, we're, we're going to get into that little statement further in a minute, but do you remember when the Protestant Reformation was begun? It was begun by Martin Luther. Everybody seems to know that, I think. Uh, and Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation by nailing 95 theses. Now, those are just statements. 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. You know that? The first of those 95 theses, number one on the list, was a statement about repentance. Let me read it to you. Martin Luther says this. In his first thesis, in his first thesis on uh, which launched the Protestant Reformation, he says, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers shall be one of repentance. The whole life of believers is to be one of repentance. So here's my plan. I'm going to look at uh, Psalm 51 for three weeks. Under this heading. Coming back to God. My message is... um, is pretty much the same message that you'll find in the book of Joel. Anybody ever read the, the prophet Joel, the, the minor prophet Joel? Well, my message in three parts is pretty much like this book of Joel. If you've never read it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. It's a short book, three chapters. And David is, I mean, and Joel is speaking to Jerusalem. And he is, he is talking to Jerusalem about their sin. And he likens the spiritual condition of Jerusalem to a field that has been ravaged by a swarm of locusts. Did you get that? Joel illustrates the spiritual condition of Jerusalem by likening it to a field that has been ravaged by locusts. Let me just read you just a bit of it. He says... um, What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Joel is describing the the, the spiritual condition of Jerusalem as a field that has been ravaged by a bunch of locusts. And as a, as a result, he says, the fields are destroyed and the ground mourns. He is saying that Israel is in the spiritual condition that she's in because of sinful choices that she has made. And then he goes on to say, 
in the middle of his book, he says to this, this people of Jerusalem, he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Guys, that's what I want to do with this little three-part look at Psalm 51. And I, I, I want to because I'm convinced that there's not a one of us here who, who doesn't have at least a few days that the locusts, the few days of your life, that, that the locusts have eaten. I mean, we uh, survey our, our spiritual fields and we wonder, why is there so little fruit in my life? I mean, by now, I should be, I, I should be bearing a good deal of, of fruits for the kingdom and, and I don't see it. Why is it that I feel like I've got a fistful of locust eaten years? Why is it that locust like depression plagues me month after month after month? Why is it that there's so little sense of meaning in my life, except maybe making money? Is that what I'm supposed to live for? And, and, and my, my tank of joy is, is way less than half full. How do I get off this road that seems to be heading nowhere spiritually? How do I, how do I stop this, this downward spiral? How do I recover? How do I come back to God? David's gonna tell us. He's gonna tell us in Psalm 51. And in a word, we come back via Repentance. Hey guys, did you ever consider that maybe the reason that there is so little fruit in your life spiritually is, is due to the fact of your sin? I mean, did you, did you think that all of those moral lapses were Really not a big deal? Well, they were. And um, how do I get beyond that? How do I get back to God? David's going to tell us. Now, guys, you got to listen to me for this next 90 seconds, and then you can go back to sleep, but... But you've got to understand this. Psalm 51 was written by a believer. The author of Psalm 51 is David. He is a believer. 
This is a psalm written to and for the benefit of believing people who have blown it. And they wonder, how can I recover from the years that the locusts have eaten? David's going to tell us in Psalm 51. Now, guys, here's what I want to do. I want to make sure that you know the story. I, I, I would assume, but <laughs> you can't do that anymore. I would assume that everybody knows the story of David and Bathsheba. But I'm not going to assume that. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that you know that story. I'm going to tell it as we go. And then as we close, I want to take a brief, just a, just a brief two-part look at uh, the issue of repentance. Because it is via repentance, ladies and gentlemen. It is the path back to God. It is via repentance. And we're going to look at repentance just a little. That's what we're going to do today. Here we go. This, this whole ugly episode, it, it, it is shocking at many different levels. But the level which is the most poignant for me is, is, is when you compare the David who was a young boy in, say, 1 Samuel 17 when he fought Goliath with the man that is being described in this incident with Bathsheba. You remember in 1 Samuel 17 when David strode out onto the field of battle against Goliath and he was all confident in God and, 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 and committed to victory that God would give him and he slays Goliath and he wins this enormous victory for God and his people. Compare him to the man who did this. What happened? What happens to a believing man, woman, who starts out like that and finds themselves like this? You know, ladies and gentlemen, it says a good deal about the power of temptation, does it not? I mean, if, if temptation can, can level David, that I sure ain't no match. It also says something, I think, about the power of this particular temptation. The sensual, the fleshly, the sexual. The whole episode begins when David makes a decision to entrust warfare to his generals. You remember how the story opens? It's in uh, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, where it says, It was the spring of the year when kings go out to fight wars. But David decided to stay home. Why he decided to stay home, we're not told. Maybe it was pure laziness. Uh, who knows? Um, uh, but he's not, he's not at where he should be. And so there he is one night, kind of wandering around the rooftop, Maybe because he can't sleep because he just had an afternoon nap. And he's wandering around his rooftop, uh, just bored stiff. Which that in itself, ladies and gentlemen, is a, is very inconsistent with the responsibilities of a king whose, whose country is at war. He's just strolling around a rooftop. And then his voyeurism. 
and his lust for Bathsheba. The next thing he does is, is he orders somebody to go get Bathsheba, bring her over to the palace, and that's what happens. Um, as far as Bathsheba is concerned, she's not completely guiltless. Uh, the text simply states that she was observing purity laws with respect to a woman's cycle. Did she realize that she could be observed as she bathed on the rooftop? Did she want to be observed? We're not told. But um, if she were innocent, and if she really wasn't an exhibitionist, then the invitation on the part of the king to come um, over to his house would have been absolutely repugnant to her. And as you know, it takes two to tango. It takes two to commit adultery, whether it's royal or otherwise. And Bathsheba shows no resistance whatsoever. And yet, guys, if David had been doing what he was supposed to be doing, this event would have never happened. Is there a lesson here for us? You bet there is. Guys, if we are doing what we should be doing when we should be doing it, then we are less exposed to temptation. Guys, have you ever had the experience of being driving driving your car uh, in, in traffic and you're so angry at somebody who's talking on their phone and they just pulled out in front of you and almost, you know, killed you and everybody else around you and you're so angry you could kill but you don't have a gun. You know what that is? That is protection. The, oppor- the, the temptation existed, but there was no opportunity for you to carry forth with the, with the temptation. That is God's protection of us. But on this occasion, the temptation arises and the opportunity exists. Because David's not where he should be doing what he should be doing when he should be doing it. And if you're on the road representing your company and you're in places where you're not supposed to be doing things that you were not asked to do at a time when you were not supposed to do them, then don't be surprised. Guys, had the, uh, had the story stopped right there, it would have been bad enough. But what follows is, is just downright shameful. Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. And David, Lee, David immediately recalls her husband from the battlefield. Uh, her, his name is Uriah. Uh, Uriah is called home from the battlefield with the pretense of David wanting to know exactly how the battle's going out there on the battlefield. You know, where he's supposed to be. And so Uriah comes and David politely asks him how the battle was going and, and, um, and then he dismisses Uriah, uh, in the hope that Uriah would somehow pay a conjugal visit to his wife 
and thereby disguising his sin, confusing the paternity issue, and never suspecting that uh, her child was sired by a different man. But Uriah didn't play ball. Uriah refused to go home. He says that the ark of the Lord was with the Israelite army. And, and Uriah felt that his place was by the ark, not in bed with his wife. So now David is a little nervous and he suggested that he needs to stay another day while he cooks up another scheme. And so the next night, David, David gets Uriah drunk and sends him home or sends him on his way hoping that alcohol would accomplish what David's diplomacy had failed to accomplish. But even though, although Uriah was drunk, he wasn't drunk enough to change his convictions. He doesn't go home. He sleeps in the palace in the servants' quarters. And then comes the most sinister twist of this whole event. David writes a little small letter and puts it in the hand of Uriah. Uriah delivers his own death certificate to Joab, the general uh, in David's army. Uriah goes back to the battlefield with a, with a note in hand from David. And uh, this note contains instructions from David to put Uriah in, in the place of maximum danger in the battle and then withdraw the troops away from him with the clear hint that David wants this man dead. Joab obeys the order and Uriah is killed and thereby unleashes consequences that are so far reaching that it is impossible to exaggerate the consequences that arise as a result of what David has done. Uriah's dead, and so David immediately transfers Bathsheba to the palace so that she could be comforted. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, David wasn't allowed to get away with this sin. God raises up a prophet by the name of Nathan. And in this dramatic confrontation, Nathan uses his little soul story about sheep. And, and, um, and then at the end of it, David is all roused And Nathan takes his bony little finger and sticks it in David's face and says, David, thou art the man. And at this point, we begin to see something of the good side of David. Guys, I too have had the very unwelcome and unhappy task of confronting some spiritual leaders with their sin. If you want to know, I was on a committee at Presbytery, and and um, the committee was called Church Care, the Church Care Committee. And the Church Care Committee was its its function was to take care of problems that existed in churches. And so, on more occasions than I'd like to tell you, I have been a part of confronting spiritual leaders with their sin, and their responses vary. One said. Who told you, the dirty rat? Another one, his response was this. He said, well, I may have done that. 
But he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. (laughs) Another one said, well, yeah, I did it, but uh, you've, you've got an exaggerated story. I don't know why she keeps exaggerating what happened. It's no big deal. And on every occasion, the, the, the common strain, to me at least, seemed to be a preoccupation with one's public image and an attempt to make excuses for the sin. The reason I tell you that little story, ladies and gentlemen, is to draw attention to what David's response was. David didn't do any of that. None of that does he do. When he is finally identified as the guilty party, here's what he says. I have sinned. I have sinned against the Lord. 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13. An immediate, unqualified confession of his sin. There's no excuses that he gives. He makes no attempt to downplay what he's done. Now, gang, all of that is really background that brings us into the psalm itself, into Psalm 51. Psalm 51 tells you what David was thinking in the early hours of having been confronted with his sin and and confessing it. The, The Psalm 51 answers some of the questions that you and I might be asking when our consciences refuse to allow us to just move on, forget it, it's no big deal. Ladies and gentlemen, you want to know how to get back to God? You get back to God the way David did. And may I add, there is only one way that you get back to God. And some people hear that and their their immediate response is, oh, but no, I, I can't do it. The complications, the consequences of my coming clean about my sin, they're just too onerous. Why? Why? Uh, this may lead to a divorce. Or, um, gosh, I may lose my job over this. I may even face some jail time. There's a story, guys, in, um, in uh, Jeremiah 18, where the prophet Jeremiah confronts a group of people with their sin. And he invites them to return. And the response is this. It's um, Jeremiah 18, 12. They say, We can't do that. It's hopeless. It's useless. We're too far gone. I I could never get back to a path of righteousness. And if I did, I'm not sure God would even accept me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. You are never so far away. That you can't get back to God. But the road back for all of us, for all of us, is the same one that David took. There are many ways to leave God, but there's only one way to get back. Let me do this real quick, and there were. First, guys, I just want you to consider this. Why do you think the Holy Spirit of God includes such an ugly, sordid story like this one in his word? You know the reason? 
Here's the reason, ladies and gentlemen. He is telling you, you can come back. We are dealing in Psalm 51 with a horrendous crime by a man of God. And you who who read these lines of Psalm 51, um, you may be saying, well, you know, I committed adultery too. But it is very unlikely, I think, that you then went on to have your lover's spouse murdered. Whatever sin you may have committed, sexual or otherwise, it is very likely that it's no worse than David's. You may be tormenting yourself with some kind of, oh, but a man in my position, you know, someone with my responsibilities ought not to have ever been guilty of what I've done. David was God's anointed king. Oh, but mine is worse because I should have known better. I mean, because I've witnessed to people, I've taught Sunday school. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that may all be true. But the fact remains, God has provided a path back. But there's only one. Now look at it real quickly with me and then we're done. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, David says this, I have sinned against the Lord. That's step one. That is, you cannot... Deal with your sin until you look it in the eye. You you, you undress it. You strip off all of the excuses that you've made to cover your uglinesses. You own it. You call it what it is. You don't call it a small dalliance or sowing wild oats. It was adultery. Or whatever. You look in the mirror. And that man that is looking back at you, you tell him, you sinned. Not only have you sinned, but you have the potential to commit the same sin again tomorrow. Tell him that he's sinned. Don't pull any punches. Guys, more often than not, people are um, are unable to look squarely at their sin because of because of self love. Because self love gets in the way, you're humiliated. The other people now know the truth about you, and your love of human approval outweighs your desire for God's approval. Well, I'm simply saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the first step in repentance must include this. I have sinned against the Lord. That's where it starts. The second thing, or the second step on this path back, is really addressed in the first verse. How do I resume a conversation with a God whom I've offended and wronged? After about 
a year of trying to avoid it and, and ignore the guilt and the shame, how do I, how do I start a conversation with him? Well, you do it like David does, ladies and gentlemen. After about a year of his trying to run from his own guilt, he casts himself on the person and the character of God. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God. Guys, he knows that nothing is owed him, that God is under no obligation, but he also knows something about the nature and the character of God, and so he flings himself onto the lap of a God who is rich in mercy and loving kindness. Oscar Wilde, a name that you might find familiar, Oscar Wilde was a 19th century English playwright. After he was exposed or caught in this notorious scandal, he was reportedly he was reported to have said this. He said, "Well, God will forgive me. It's His job." As if it was owed him. Well, David knows better. There's no presumption. He understands that punishment is what I deserve, but mercy is what I desire. And if there is not mercy to be found with you, then my case is lost. The way back is right there, ladies and gentlemen. It begins by an honest owning and admission of my own sin. And then I cast myself on the loving kindness and the mercy of God. And it's there, ladies and gentlemen, that I have good news for you. Yahweh is full of mercy. Oh, but Jimmy, how can you be so sure after what I've done? Well, I'm sure because it is God himself who describes himself as being full of mercy. Guys, um, when I was preparing the sermon, I ran into something that I thought was just incredibly odd. Um, it was a, a this very odd legal loophole that used to exist back in the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. And it was called the benefit of clergy. And it was based on First Chronicles 16.22 that says, Touch not my anointed and do my uh, prophets no harm. And what the benefit of clergy was was, was this. If you were a clergyman and you had committed a capital offense, a, a, a felonious crime that you could die for, you could plead the benefit of clergy, which was, which it, it included reading what was called the neck verse. The neck verse as in its ability to save your neck. You were asked to read the miserari mai. You know what that is? <laughs> That's the Latin translation of Psalm 51.1. The bad news is, ladies and gentlemen, that as odd as that loophole was, it was, it was abolished from the legal system in Britain in 1827. The good news is this. God has not abolished Psalm 51.1. It is the second step back 
Guys, we ought to love repentance. As Luther said, it's, it should be a way of life for us. It, it clears the air. It, it, it allows us to restart. I've been talking to you, ladies and gentlemen, about a, about a road back for God's people, for us. Because you know what? We're a bunch of wandering souls, aren't we? You know, we sing a song in here. It's one of our favorites. At least one of my favorites. It goes like this. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you left? I say to you, if you've never come to God in the first place, there's another path for you. It's a path that will take you directly to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. It'll take you to Christ, who died in the place of people as wicked as I am. Our Father, I do pray that you will remind your people that once we stepped into the kingdom, Our sin didn't stop. In a lot of ways, it got worse because we know better. We we have said things about you that were good and right and true and glorious, like David did. And then then we have really botched it. God, would you use this psalm to assure your people that there is never a distance too far that we can't come back. That though there's many ways to leave you, there's only one, only one way to get back. Show us that path, O God, and bring us to the, once again, to the precious bleeding side of Jesus Christ, the Savior. It's in his name we pray.